0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. In the book of Leviticus, we see God speaking from the tabernacle of meeting. He has descended into the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and now he speaks out the Levitical rituals and sacrifices and regulations, and in chapter 1, God gives us the instructions for the whole burnt offering, uh, an offering of atonement, and in Leviticus 2, we come to the grain offering. Leviticus chapter 2, and we'll read the whole chapter here now, the word of the Lord. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. He shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons, It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing, from your grain offering, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. So ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would be present as we seek to understand it and apply it. We pray that the meditations of our heart this morning would be faithful in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Leviticus is a book that we might skim, we might look very lightly over, and yet what we find when we start to dig deep into the book is that not only is the gospel so beautifully present But the sacrifice, the work of Jesus Christ himself is so beautifully present in this book. And so we remember the context of Leviticus. We have a people of God that is redeemed from the land of bondage in Egypt. They are brought out to the wilderness and God covenants with them. He gives them the law, the law that we heard just a few moments ago. And he takes what was not a people and makes them a people. He brings them together and he forms a kingdom of these disparate groups of people, all the house of Israel. And then he leads them, and will lead them later in the Pentateuch, to the promised land. And so God himself descends into the tabernacle. His glory cloud is there in the midst of his people. And the question is, how can a glorious God, holy and pure, dwell with an unclean people? The answer, as picture form in Leviticus, is through sacrifices. And so in chapter 1, we see the whole burnt offering. It's a substitutionary atonement. And this whole burnt offering can be offered by an individual, or it is offered every day on on behalf of the people, all the people of Israel, by the priests, morning and evening. And then we come to the grain offering. And we see later in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, we see other Offerings, Five sacrifices, each of them like a diamond as you turn it in the light, reflecting a different facet of Christ and his salvation. And you'll notice that in most of the sacrifices, there is blood. We see that in chapter 1, but we will see that later in the peace offering and all the others. But in this offering, there is no mention of blood. The grain offering itself is offered, we might say, in light of the blood spilt by the whole burnt offering, which was still smoking on the altar. This offering, this grain offering, is made in light of atonement. It's an offering that comes from the fruits of the Israelites' labor, it comes from the field and from the oven. It comes from the daily bread that God has given his people. And so the grain offering is offered from labor. It's offered from God honoring and God glorifying work. It is offered from the gift of God himself. It is offered from the harvest, from the first fruits of the land which the Lord will be giving his people. The grain offering is a giving back to God. Andrew Bonar, the Scottish preacher from the 19th century, says this about the grain offering. He says, The moment we are pardoned, atoned for, all that we are and all that we have becomes the property of Christ. And so this grain offering represents the offerer's person and property, his body and his possessions. And so we can think of it, and we will think of it this morning in this way. Having received full atonement from Christ on the cross, all that you have, all that you are, and all that you do belongs to Christ. Having given himself for us, we now give ourselves back to him. And so first, let's consider the ingredients of the grain offering. We see this in verse 1. Read with me again. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. So notice here we have three main elements of this grain offering. Fine flour, oil, and frankincense. And in verse 1, we see that these main ingredients of the offering are offered regardless of how they're mixed together. You'll notice that as you read down through chapter 2, regardless of whether the offering is baked in an oven, it shall be of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Or verse 5, if the grain offering is baked in a pan, it shall be of fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. And so it continues. Different cooking methods, but the same requirements. Fine flour, oil, and if the person could afford it, frankincense. And so we have to ask this question, why? Why these three ingredients? Why fine flour, oil, and frankincense? And we first notice that the offering is given by the individual. The flour, the oil, the frankincense are gifts brought back to God from the personal possession of the offerer. The grain offering is offered from the fruit of the person's labor, and so therefore it comes from their field, it comes from their work of their hands. If they didn't have a field, then it came from their possession. It came from their buying, their trading. It came from them. The Israelites would be given fields and a vineyard by God in the promised land, a rich and abounding gift from the Lord. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and now he will give them rest in the land of promise. And so they would go from making bricks to making bread. And so the offer gives back to the Lord what the Lord has already given him and the fruitful promised land. A sacrifice of the best of their labor, the best of the fruit of the land that the Lord himself had provided, the finest flour of the wheat, the daily bread given by God himself. And so the fine flour is a gift of thankfulness from the individual. And mixed with it is oil, most likely olive oil. And when we read through the Old Testament, we see oil is a picture of abundance and richness, of blessing. When Moses sends spies into the promised land, they are told to look and see whether the land is rich or poor. And the word there is oil. So you could actually read it like this. Whether the soil is rich, fertile, f- fruitful, is it olive oil land? Is it fruitful land? Is it blessed land? You remember Psalm 23, you pour oil over my head. You anoint my head with oil. You pour blessing and honor on my head, the psalmist seems to say. So in pouring oil on the bread or the flour, the offerer is saying, here is the fruit of your land, Lord. And I pour on it, on this rich gift, I pour on it a sign of honor and blessing and fruitfulness. And so the oil is soaking into the bread or into the flour. And when it's placed on the altar, the olive oil will ignite and fire will burst forth from the gift. And so mixed with fine flour and with oil then is frankincense. And frankincense in this time was immensely expensive. Not all could afford to offer this. But if they could, they would put frankincense on the offering as a sign of their prayers before the Lord. It's frankincense, by the way, that is offered in the holy place of the tabernacle by the priests. And it creates this cloud of incense before the Lord. It rises up before the Lord as a soothing aroma, as prayers of the priests. And so the frankincense is offered here on the altar outside the holy place, mixed with the offering. A picture of the beautiful scent of the prayers of God's people rising up to heaven. So this is a sacrifice of joy. It's a sacrifice of gratitude. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a sacrifice made in light of redemption and salvation and the gift that God has so graciously showered His people with. From bondage and slavery in Egypt, now they are free. They're led out to the mountain of God, and they will be led into the promised land. And did they earn it? Did they deserve the promised land, this gift? No. But God in his love and his grace and his kindness not only promised this land to them, but he would bring them in. In the peace of God's kingdom, in the peace of God's presence, they would plow and they would plant, they would tend and they would harvest. They would have grain in the silos and bread in the oven. They would work this promised land in the worship and in the reverence of the Lord. They would have children, they would have sons and daughters in peace and prosperity, God's peace and God's prosperity. They would raise their children in the fear and in the admonition of the Lord and they would see their children's children walking in love and faith that he swore to their fathers that God promised to keep the covenant and the steadfast love to love them and to bless them and to multiply them. God promised to bless the fruit of their womb, the fruit of their ground, their grain and their wine and their oil, the increase of their herds and the young of their flock. They would be blessed above all peoples in the earth. And so with thankful hearts and thankful hands, with joy and with gratitude, these blessed children of the Lord God would bring back to the Lord the gift from the gift that He had given them. And so, brothers and sisters, we think now, what has the Lord your God given you? What has the loving, fatherly hand of our King given to you? It's so easy to focus on the things He hasn't given us, Or the things that his hand has withdrawn from us. But what has the Lord our God given to you? When we're outside the kingdom, when we were slaves to sin, in a real sense, we were completely destitute and bankrupt. Everything, as Solomon says, is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. All things are full of weariness. Ecclesiastes says, A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Outside of Christ, all is vanity and meaningless and foolishness to the one who is perishing. His days are full of emptiness and sin. His job is an endless cycle of bitterness. He lives in sin, but he hates himself and he hates God most of all and everyone around him. All is vanity of vanities and misery. But brother and sister, you've been called out of darkness. You're a child of the King. And in the words of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord God has set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings we read in Deuteronomy shall come to you and they shall overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessings have actually found you. They've found you out and overtaken you, and you can't escape them. Blessed are you when you go out and when you go in. Blessed is your work. Blessed in your parenting. Blessed in your teaching. Blessed in your school work, in your retirement. What has the Lord your God given to you? In a word, he's given everything. And this is not to minimize the real troubles and the real griefs and the real trials that we go through. But he's given you everything you stand in need of. Everything you stand in need of today and everything for your good. And thus, as the Catechism says, we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his hand. So the offering is a giving back to the Lord of the blessings and of the fullness that God has given to us. But it's also an offering of memorial. It's an offering of remembrance of what our covenant God has done in redemption. Read with me in verse 2. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he, that is the priest, shall take from it a handful of the fine flour with oil and with all the frankincense and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the same is repeated in verse 9 and verse 16 the priest we read takes a handful and this is a remembrance that's the word in the original it's a remembrance a thankful, a worshipful remembrance of what God has done for his people. So think of a memorial. What does a memorial do? A memorial is made not only to honor and commemorate a person or an event, but it's also made in order for you to remember that person, to remember that event and so the grain offering is a cause for remembrance. But remembering what? The answer is found in verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall alter, offer salt. The ESV here mentions salt three times, but in the original it's four. That's a lot of salt in one verse it more literally reads salting you shall salt you shall surely salt your grain offerings this is not just ordinary table salt this is salt of the covenant the salt is a reminder of the covenant promise the covenant keeping God God made a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants forever, promising to be their God and that they would be his people. And when the groanings and sufferings of his people in Egypt rose up to heaven, as it were, in the fullness of time, God remembered his covenant. The Lord God is the God who keeps and remembers covenant he knows and remembers and sees and saves. And so it is the covenant Lord who delivers his people from slavery in Egypt through the waters and through the wilderness. It is the covenant Lord who would now lead his people to a land flowing with milk and honey, who would give to his people large and beautiful cities they did not build, Houses full of good things they did not fill. Wells of clear water which they did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees which they did not plant. And so God commands them in Deuteronomy 6.11. He says this, When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. Remember, people of Israel. Remember the Lord your God. Remember the great things he has done. And so the individual brings his offering of thankfulness and he thinks and he meditates on the Lord's covenant faithfulness. He remembers as the priest grabs the memorial portion and lays it on the altar of burnt offering of atonement. He lifts up his heart and his soul and he remembers the God who brought him out of Egypt and has given him these things. And we also are covenant children. We're covenant people. We praise God. We thank him for all the things that he's given to us, that he's provided to us, but we also remember the salt of the covenant Remember not only what God has given you, but also remember all that God has done for you. Are you a covenant child? Did you grow up in the church, and is there a time that you can't remember not believing in Jesus? Think of the privilege and the grace and the beauty That for your whole life long, your entire life, you have known your Father in heaven, Jesus as your Savior and the Holy Spirit as your Comforter. Remember the great love of our triune God who loved you and who saved you, who has walked with you from infancy, who has led you, guided you, provided for you your shepherd through the joys of life and through the griefs of life, who has led you as a shepherd through the valleys of light and the valleys of darkness, through the doubts of faith, through the struggles against sin, so that you should be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. Remember all that he's done for you. Did you come to faith later in life? Do you remember a time when you were walking away from the Lord, when you were in darkness and you were in bondage and you were in prison of sin, when you were lost in the wilderness with no hope and no peace and no joy? Think of what God has done for you. He himself came and he found you. He found you in your brokenness, he found you in your misery, he found you in your sin. And what did he do? He gave you a new heart. Because He knew you from before the foundation of the world and so He, our covenant-keeping God, found you in darkness and brought you out. He led you out of the exodus from the kingdom of darkness and He led you into the kingdom of His Son. Remember the Lord your God who brought you out of sin and misery and death with a mighty arm. In saving you, He has purchased you. Not only all that you have, but all that you are. For you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are in his covenant family. You're a son of your father. You are a son of the king. And so all of you are all of his. So the grain offering is given from all that we have. It is a remembrance as it is. It is a memorial for all that God has done for us. And now we come to our third point, kingdom building in all that we do. This offering is given from the fruit of the land. It is burned as a memorial portion, but not all of it is burned. A handful is burned. The rest is given to the priests. Verse 3, we read, But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. And the same we see in verse 10. So why is it a most holy part? Well, the answer is the Levites did not have an inheritance in the land. The Lord, their God, would be their inheritance, but they did not have land. So, the other 11 tribes, through their offerings, provided for the priests. The priests were relying on the people of Israel themselves, God working in them to bring them their own daily bread. And so, we see a really incredible picture here. The offer having been blessed by God with the fruitful harvest. Gives back to the Lord in worship from his heart and his soul. And as part of his offering back, he provides for the ministers of God's house. In worship, God is providing for those who are worshiping. And so we see through all of this that God's kingdom is being built. And this offering, therefore, shows us, brothers and sisters, that it's not just the Levitical priest who is doing God's kingdom work. The faithful day by day work of the ordinary Israelites is helping to sustain and to build God's kingdom. In other words, it's just not the Levitical priests who are priests in God's presence. The entire nation is called by God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Exodus 19, we we read this, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Levites were called to serve in God's tabernacle, but their priesthood was only one part of the kingdom of priests. So do we see the promise here? All of the Israelites, all of God's redeemed people would be serving in the presence of the Lord. The faithful Israelite farmer tilling the field would be tilling the field in the face, before the face, of the covenant God. He would not just be a farmer, but he would be a farmer serving the Lord to his glory, subduing the earth and serving his family. Like Boaz, he would be a man after God's own heart, a righteous man, a faithful and wise man, loving the Lord his God and his neighbor as himself. And as the harvest would arrive, he takes the first fruits, the best of his offering to the Lord. He isn't called to be a Levitical priest, but he is called to be a priest in the kingdom of God, to be a representative of God, not only to his family, and to his neighborhood, and to his tribe, but to the world. The Israelite wife and mother, a woman after God's own heart, serving the calling that God has given her, Strength and dignity are her clothing, as Proverbs 31 says. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She wakes up before the sun. She's tired and she's weary, but in love she serves God where God has placed her. In providing for her husband, in providing for her children, in providing for the stranger that may come through, providing for the widow, for the orphan, the neighbor in need. She is blessed and given the fruit of her hands, and her works praise her in the gates. She grinds the fine flour, and in thankfulness to the Lord, her covenant God, she bakes a loaf and pours olive oil on it and puts frankincense on it, and she takes it to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits. She salts it with the salt of the covenant. She's not called to be a Levitical priest. But she is a priest in God's kingdom. She is serving and she is guarding. She is worshiping the Lord in her faithful gospel calling. So God calls his people to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And brothers and sisters, this began to be fulfilled and is now being fulfilled by the king of kings and the great high priest. In Revelation, when John is speaking this glorious doxology to Jesus, to God, his Father, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins in his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice it's past tense. Who made us a kingdom and priests. So brothers and sisters, you are priests in God's kingdom right now. It's so easy, isn't it, to think of ourselves as distant from the work of the gospel. The devil would love nothing more than to convince you that that's actually the case to make you feel as if you are useless to the building of kingdom work. Maybe you felt that way. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. They're doing kingdom work, but what am I doing? The pastor and missionary are called to the building of God's kingdom, but so are each and every one of you. You are the salt of the World, You are the light of the world. God has sovereignly, intentionally placed each and every one of us right where we are for his kingdom building. Let your light shine before others, Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, brothers and sisters, where has God placed you as his priest And it's so important to think of ourselves in this way. Where has God placed me as his representative? Not where do I happen to be. Not where I placed myself. Where has God placed me in his kingdom? Are you in school? Are you in college? God has placed you there. How are you a priest in his presence. How are you magnifying and reflecting the glorious light of the gospel in your studious work, in your friendships, in the classroom? Are you an employer? How has God placed you in that work, in this place, to reflect the glorious light of the gospel to your employees, to the neighborhood around you, if you are an employee, where has God placed you? If you're a retiree, where has God placed you? You are to be a shining light and salt on the earth. You give your tithes and your offerings to the church. That is kingdom building work. It's a gift of the first fruits of your offering. But this is the glorious thing. Your entire life, in all your callings, is to be a grain offering to the Lord. And so I know of two eye surgeons in Colorado. They own a small clinic. They've been given specific gifts and talents for work in the medical field. They serve in their church. They are kingdom builders in a dark and secular city. They don't have Bible studies in their business. They don't have Bible verses posted around on the wall. Their business name doesn't reflect that they are Christian men. But alongside of the believers they hire, they hire unbelievers living in sin and in darkness. They hire sinners and tax collectors, if you will. They openly speak of Christ, of the scriptures, of the things of God in the hallways, in the break room with patience. They not only pay competitive wages, but they pay higher than anyone else in town. Once a month, they travel over a 100 miles a day to go to small rural towns where they serve as eye surgeons and as eye clinics in places that don't have them, to the shut-ins and to widows. And in the car... They talk with their employees. They ask questions. They listen. They, even if the employee is an unbeliever, they ask to pray for that employee. When death strikes the family of one of their employees, a miscarriage, the death of a parent, the death of a grandparent, without a second thought, they stop everything, and they call everyone together in the room, in the break room, and they pray. When the state-mandated lockdowns of COVID happened in Colorado... They paid every single employee's salary for a month from their own accounts, without any expectation of being paid back. These men are priests. They are salt and they are light. They are representatives of Jesus Christ, not only to the believers and their employer, in their employee, but they're also representatives of Jesus Christ to a dead and a dying world. They are not preaching the gospel, but they're living out the gospel. They support their church with their tithes and their offerings, with their gifts and their talents, but their kingdom work is in every aspect of their lives, as fathers, as husbands, as employers, as mentors, as friends. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ purchased you with his blood on the cross, all that you have, and all that you are, and all that you do belongs to him. In Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of the suffering servant, we read that when you make his soul an offering for sin, he, that is the suffering servant, Jesus shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus Christ, the atoning offering for our sin, was raised from the dead, and he was the first fruits of a good harvest to come. Being the firstborn of many brothers, the Lord Jesus Christ is even now seeing his seed multiplied and magnified from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth, you are part of the kingdom of God. In Jesus Christ, you are part of the first fruits of the harvest to come. You and every believer from the f- foundation of the world into its end who belong in the church will be offered up on the last day by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. You and I and all the church are the harvest of thankfulness, of covenant-keeping thankfulness to the Lord. Having provided redemption, our great high priest will continue to provide all that you stand in need of in this life. He has kept you. He keeps you now. He places you where he has placed you. He's given you a mandated call. And He is glorified. Not only in your giving, but He is glorified. Not only in all that He's given you. He's not only glorified in all that you do, but He's glorified in who He's made you to be. And so what more can we say than take my life and let it be? Take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated all to Thee. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping, covenant-making, covenant-sustaining Lord. We thank you that you have provided us all that we stand in need of today. We thank you that you have given us our daily bread and we thank you that you have called us to kingdom work. We thank you and we praise you for your Son, the firstborn of many brothers, who is our great high priest and king, who knows us in all our weakness, knows us in all the ways we need to grow, knows us in all of our need, and who himself provides for us. We pray that you would be glorified in our work this week.